these laws change and, and increase over time, the scope of hate speech laws grows. But in, in many instances, these laws can stay the same, and it's a interpretation of them that changes, which we have no control or say over, which I think is even more dangerous, yes. because you end up with this process where the underlying law has stayed exactly the same. Your view has stayed exactly the same. So nothing has changed, but you've gone from mainstream to unpopular to criminal with nothing changing. And you don't get to decide this process. You're just a victim of it. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Paul Coleman. Paul is a lawyer, speaker and author. He is executive director of ADF International, the faith-based legal advocacy organization that protects fundamental freedoms. Paul specializes in international human rights and European law. He has been involved in more than 20 cases brought before the European Court of Human Rights. And he's also author of the brilliant book, Censored, How European Hate Speech Laws Are Threatening Freedom of Speech. He is, in my view, one of Europe's best and most consistent defenders of freedom of speech. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I want to kick off by asking you about a case that you wrote about on Spiked and which you are currently campaigning on, which even to me, someone who feels that I've got used to the horrors of censorship in the 21st century, even I found it quite shocking. So this is the case of Parvi Resonen in Finland, a member of parliament and a Christian who currently finds herself in legal hot water for expressing what would traditionally have been seen as fairly standard Christian beliefs. So can you tell us a bit about this quite alarming case? Absolutely. And it is alarming. And I think it's right what you said, because when we are working on these free speech issues full time, we are often shocked by the sort of cases that, that happen, that we see, the examples that we see. But then every now and then, something stands out as being particularly shocking. Um, and this is one of those cases that we really need to just take a step back to look at it and think, is this, is this actually happening? Uh, Pavi has been a member of parliament for 25 years. She served as the minister of the interior. Um, she has been a well-respected, well-liked politician for a very long time. And she's also a Christian, as you said. She's a member of the Finnish Lutheran Church. And last summer, the Lutheran Church, some administrators within the church, decided that they would become the uh, official partners or sponsors of the Pride March in Helsinki. And so um, Pavi Rosanen tweeted uh, towards, directed towards her church leadership, essentially challenging them on this decision and asking them how that aligns with church doctrine. And in doing this, she tweeted a, a photo of some Bible verses. So that was the first case. And then at the same time, around about the same time, she also faced police investigation for a church booklet that she wrote 16 years ago on marriage, on human sexuality, and on, on the Christian message. And so both of these, the, the Twitter case and this booklet, are both have both become the subject now of police investigation. And what I mean by that is she has now faced 10 hours of police interrogation on, on two instances. The first for four and a half hours, second one, 
earlier this week for five and a half hours asking her, what did you mean when you said these things? What were you thinking about? What do you think about these issues? For hours and hours and hours in the police station. It's really incredible. So if we step back and think about that, and, uh, you know, I hope listeners will put to one side what they think about Christianity, what they think about homosexuality, what they think about pride, because those things actually don't matter right at this moment because it sounds to me like she was being interrogated almost as a thought criminal because if the police are asking you for hours on end do you still think these things do you believe these things why have you said these things i mean that is a kind of almost medieval interrogation of someone for wrong think or for holding beliefs that are no longer are, are deemed by some people to no longer be acceptable so ha, would you describe it as having that kind of historic weight a case where it seems pretty clear if one just looks at the facts that an individual this case parvi in in finland is being interrogated because of what she believes absolutely i think that she we can use words like um heretic like in the way that we mm. used to understand those so she is uh, in s- some way a heretic against the the cultural orthodoxy of the day and the full weight of the state is now being used uh to to come down on her to interrogate her and essentially to use this case i think uh to send a message to everyone else watching on and i think that that is one of the main reasons we see these cases it's because the state whether it be the police, the prosecutors, or whomever, they use these high-profile people in these high-profile cases in order to send a message to everyone else to say, you better be careful what you think and what you say, because if we can go after this high-profile person, we can certainly go after you. So yeah. watch out what you write, watch out what you tweet, because we're not far away. Uh, one of the most shocking aspects of the case for me, which you covered in your spike piece, is what Finland's uh, prosecutor general said in one of the national newspapers there which is that it's fine to read certain books and even uh, to quote from certain books you know how gracious that they would allow us to do that um but the problem emerges if you actually believe these things and she uh, the prosecutor general gave the example of the Quran the Bible and Mein Kampf um now what's extraordinary about that uh, there are two extraordinary things firstly the the likening of the Quran and the Bible to to Mein Kampf which uh, is 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 actually deeply offensive right. <laughs> far more offensive than anything I've heard from the other side in this story but also even more concerning than that is this notion that read them if you want sell them buy them quote from them but don't believe this stuff and that's where it becomes a problem if you actually believe what you're reading and believe what you're saying because that really does boil down to checking someone's thoughts policing mm. someone's thoughts making sure that so presumably it would have been okay if someone had tweet quoted these verses from the bible in an ironic way or in a disagreeing way but to to quote them and to in your mind and soul believe that they are true that's where it becomes a problem that's horrendous right incredible that's exactly right and that's where it becomes the way these laws work a criminal offense and and how on earth do you the, the law is not set up to be able to distinguish between these things did you did you tweet these bible verses what was in your mind when you were tweeting them uh were you Im- implying that you agree with with these verses or were you doing it ironically or whatever this is a ludicrous situation to be in where we end up having to uh start asking these questions about what people were thinking when mm. they when they said these things. So let's broaden it out a bit to look at the state of hate speech 
I'm putting, doing air quotes around hate speech because like you, I, I think it's an, it's an unacceptable term. But let's look at how broad this problem is because in your book, Censored, you write incredibly well about the growth of hate speech legislation across Europe. And I think even some people who might be inclined towards censoring offensive comment might well find the Finnish case quite controversial and shocking because it is controversial and shocking. But they might be tempted to see it as a rarity, a one-off. This kind of thing doesn't really happen that often. So could you give us a bit of context about uh, other examples where people have been taken to court or in some other or, or questioned by the police on the basis that the things they think and the things they say mm. are uh, hateful as defined by this kind of legislation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the thing with the Pavirazanan case is um, it's shocking in, in, in the way that it's come about, but actually the law that it's come about under and the sort of the set of facts, we, we see these repeating in many different countries throughout Europe. She's being charged under a law that targets ethnic agitation, uh, which obviously this has got nothing to do with, but it, it shows how these these broadly used laws can then be reinterpreted later in the future for all these sorts of cases. And so every country in Europe has these similar sort of laws. Every country in Europe criminalizes what we would call in air quotes hate speech. And we, we do it in air quotes because it's an undefinable thing. It's an undefinable legal concept. But in all of the different European countries, we have criminal prohibitions against words like insult, hatred, incitement to hatred, offense, all these subjective terms that we really can't adequately define. They're often just synonyms of each other. And then we see the cases that flow from them. Some of the cases I always think of in terms of just being ridiculous, completely ludicrous cases. So there was a famous one in the UK a few years ago where a teenager went up to a police officer and said, do you know your horse is gay? and was investigated for a, for a hate crime, presumably against the horse. <laughs> so, you know, and then we had a case here in Austria a number of years ago of a man who was yodeling and his neighbour said that was offensive and he was fined 700 euros for this. And so we have all of these sort of just ridiculous cases, mm. but I think the really dangerous, pernicious cases, the way these are used are where they are targeting everyday people expressing normal views mm. and then they are severely punished for it. And probably the case that I found most shocking over the years was from the UK. It's a number of years ago now, Ben and Sharon Vogelenzang, and they were hoteliers in the north of England and they got into a debate over the breakfast table with a Muslim guest on the merits of their respective religions. So it was a heated debate, but it was civil. And it was the sort of debate that we'd expect happens in, in many homes and in many different public settings across the country for hundreds and thousands of years. At least we hope so. Well, this guest complained to the police uh, about this, said that she's offended. The police investigated them for hate speech, for hate crime. That investigation took one year, during which time the NHS, local NHS, stopped using them, which ruined their, their business. And then the whole case went to court after a year, and they were the case was thrown out, they were acquitted after the opening morning. And so what's frustrating is many people look at that and call it a victory for free speech mm. because they weren't sent to prison. But what we often talk about is that the process is often the punishment. Mm. And in this case, just what a, a regular, normal breakfast conversation led to a year-long investigation and their lives and their business was destroyed. And we see more and more 
this being the main impact of hate speech laws, not necessarily prison, but this blacklisting that comes with all these other consequences. I think that's a really important point. And one of the things I find extraordinary is that often when these kinds of cases go to court, everyone's waiting with bated breath to see if the judge will make the right decision and uh, let the people off for having said what they said or thought what they thought, which is kind of the wrong approach because not only is the process a punishment, as you say, and can be incredibly destructive of people's lives and livelihoods, but also uh, the entire process lends itself to the presumption that the state has the right to make these kinds of judgments and the state has the right to decree if what you're saying and thinking is acceptable or unacceptable. So even the very process of, of people like us waiting and hoping that it will get struck out, because obviously having it struck out at least is preferable than, than to someone being put in jail. But even that process plays into the broader problem, which is that over recent decades, via the language of hatred and insulting and offensiveness, the states across Europe have assumed this extraordinary power mm. to determine what kind of views it's acceptable to hold and express. So it's it's the underlying idea, I think, that needs a real challenge. That's exactly right. And when we put this power in the hands of the, the state apparatus, whether it be the judges or the politicians, to decide for us, is this okay or not? You know, I think of imagining Caesar with his thumb up or down, you know, <laughs> and you're exactly right. And so I always say with these cases, uh, and it annoys me when people say victory for free speech, so-and-so was let off. Um, the victory for free speech will come when these cases don't come in the first place. Yeah. Uh, when we stop giving the power to the judges to weigh the content of our speech, to weigh our beliefs, to weigh our deeply held convictions uh, in their hands and be the ones who get to decide whether it's acceptable or unacceptable. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. So could you give us a few more examples of the kind of things that you write about in your book to give listeners a sense of the kind of people and the kind of ideas essentially that are being punished. So I know that people have been arrested and taken to court for insulting Islam and for making Christian expressions about homosexuality and so on. So could you give us a couple of examples of like the current Finnish example, which seemed like a pretty clear example, not of the ridiculous cases, mm but of people actually being punished because they hold a particular moral position or, or moral belief. So we've seen across Europe a number of uh, Catholic church leaders, cardinals and even bishops, archbishops, investigated by the police for, for sermons, for homilies that they've preached from the pulpit. So we've seen a number in, in Spain and, and Belgium, for example, um, which again is just incredibly mm. shocking that mm. now we are targeting clergy essentially calling them now heretics for speaking out on on these issues from their own pulpit mm. and so again none of these people have been 
convicted, but the cases involving these Catholic cardinals and archbishops, again, it's sending a message to all the parishioners, to everyone else, we can go after your cardinal, of course we can go after you. And so we've seen a lot of those cases in the last few years, and they're always on the same issues. They're always on issues of, of sexuality, of gender and gender identity, of, of marriage and same-sex marriage and these sort of things. So I would say that that's a whole category of cases. Another whole category of cases we've seen across Europe, in France, Scandinavia, Germany, really everywhere, is cases connected to immigration and connected to issues of, yeah, migration, immigration, and all the politics surrounding that. And again, I'm not talking about cases necessarily of people saying overtly racist things. I'm talking about people criticizing government policy mm. uh, and being investigated for it. And then we have a number of cases of, uh, in France, famous people, um, Bridget Bardot and others who have been fined a lot of money, really, um, for criticizing, for example, um, the practice of halal meat and that sort of thing. And so I think the main areas that we see across Europe where these cases are happening is all connected to the main political talking points of the day. That's the point. If, what are the flashpoints in Europe culturally? Issues of sexuality and, and gender and identity, issues of immigration and Islam. These are the hot button, the flashpoints in society. So we're having a situation where the governments, the states combined with prosecutors and, and the police officers are shutting down essentially one side of that debate mm. across the continent. I, I want to ask you about the origins of some of this stuff. So, so one of the things that is incredibly interesting in your book is the long drawn out process through which these laws started to take form and treaties were put into place. And then um, national legislation was created on the back of some of these ideas and leads us to this world in which hate, so-called hate speech is quite tightly controlled across Europe. So one of the fascinating aspects of your historical overview of this is the role of the Soviet Union in pushing for these forms of legislation to tackle particularly fascistic speech, I think, or racist mm -hmm. speech, hateful forms of speech, and the role of certain political leaders in the West in terms of resisting that and trying to hold back against the idea that speech, even horrendous speech, should be policed and punished. So can you give us a brief uh, taste of what, what happened in that period and then perhaps what went so horribly wrong that we ended up actually buying into what was originally an idea that emanated from the Soviet Union? Yeah, absolutely. So if we go back in time a little bit to the end of the Second World War, uh, 1945, and the world was in ruins, Europe had been torn apart, and the international community came together. They formed the United Nations. It was bipartisan, really. It was not considered to be either left or right. It was people on both sides of the political spectrum got behind this international project in order to bring the nations together. They'd just been torn apart. And so with the United Nations came a number of international treaties that the different countries signed, essentially to say, to put limits on the power of the state and to look at the situation that happened in the Second World War and say, by what standard do we hold uh, these governments to account? If what they were doing was legal according to their own legal code, is there something above it that we mm. can hold them to, a law above this law? Uh, and that's really the rise of the modern human rights framework. So as these treaties were being written 
uh, and debated over a course of a number of years, the world then divided really into two sides quite clearly. And you see that in the voting record. So you have the the liberal Western countries, the democratic nations on the one hand, and then you have another huge voting bloc, which is the, the Soviet Union and the other socialist states aligned with the Soviet Union that formed this Eastern bloc. And so you had throughout the drafting of all these treaties, this this essentially communist versus liberal democracy uh, debate taking place on every point of every treaty. And you see this particularly with the issue of free speech. To what extent should these human rights treaties uphold and defend free speech, even the free speech of those we profoundly disagree with, or to what extent should these treaties actually empower the state to punish speech, to empower the states to, to actually take action? And so you see throughout this whole period, this seesaw of influence from east to west, um, debating these issues. And the sad reality is, as time went on, this, this communist voting bloc won out on some of the key votes. Um, and that has led to an international legal framework now that is supportive of censorship, that is supportive of uh, state limitations on speech. And then, as you say, over time, what happened is these international provisions then trickled down into the national legal codes. And the great irony and the great sadness is, as these were being debated in the 50s and the 60s, you had all of the countries like the UK, Canada, and other Western nations defending freedom of speech, speaking out against censorship. And then today, they have gone in the exact opposite direction. And we, we would actually be able to hold them to account based on their own words that they said just a few decades ago. I find that fascinating. But I think the more interesting dynamic now, because, you know, we wouldn't necessarily want to depict the current hate speech regime as something imposed on the West by the Soviet Union, because, of course, the really worrying thing is the enthusiasm with which certain sections of the political and cultural establishment in the West have institutionalized this stuff and, and use it against people who they disagree with or who they find problematic. So as, as well as that post-war international clash, something happens inside the West over the past 30 years or so, longer than that, in fact, where they bit by bit give up on the liberal ideals of openness and freedom of speech and freedom of the press and move in a very kind of creeping slow motion but palpable way towards a regime of speech control and even thought control. So what values do you think just were corroded in the West and, and what contributed to that? I think that to channel all well, we have this concept, this idea of, a, of this shrinking dictionary that starts to happen. And, and once that happens, then there is really no logical stopping point. And so what we saw is the idea that the certain forms of speech should not be allowed the most extreme forms of speech. And there was a sense of agreement on that in the West, in the, um, in particular in the sixties. But then once that happened, it became like a little Russian doll with more and more restrictions flowing out of that. So you had this idea of, for example, okay, racist speech, we agree should be banned. Okay, well, if racist speech, then what about, for example, Islamophobic speech? Yeah, you're right. Okay, let's ban that too. Okay, and then we move from Islamophobic to, for example, homophobic, from homophobic to transphobic, from transphobic to misogynistic, and on and on it goes. And I think the reason for that 
is because once once you go down this path, where do you where do you draw the line? It becomes so blurred, and so then it just becomes a question of of political power and political mm. will, and who yeah. holds political power in order to be able to say add me to this group too, add, add these restrictions as well. Yeah. And so what we've seen over the last number of years is just the scope of these hate speech laws has expanded significantly, as I say, from, from racist, Islamophobic, homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic, what have you. But then also the threshold of what's considered hatred or not has got lower and lower and lower. And so in the 60s, for example, when they were thinking about um, what would be criminalized speech, they were thinking of the most extreme forms of speech that everyone, I think, would agree are offensive. Uh, today, we're talking about wolf whistling. Mm -hmm. We're talking about just speaking the truth or, or one's beliefs on issues of biology, of issues of genetics or whatever. And so we've gone on this huge journey, but it's, it's really been a step-by-step -step process. Um, and I think, sadly... As we look at that, we can only project out into the future and start to think, well, where's this trajectory going? What else, what else is to come in yeah. these restrictions? It's such an incredibly important point, I think, for people to take on board, which is that, which is the dangers inherent in the logic of censorship. Because once you accept the logic of censorship, which is this idea that incredibly offensive or problematic speech should be subjected to controls by the government or some other uh, authoritative body. Once you accept that idea, then you open the floodgates and there's really no telling where it will end. The only thing that you can know for certain is that it will spread. That, that's why H.L. Mencken decades ago made the point that you have to defend the free speech of scoundrels because authoritarianism tends to start with scoundrels, but it never ends there. It always goes on to people who you consider to be your friends or people you agree with and so on. You know, good. Uh, I always think about when I first started writing about freedom of speech many, many years ago, what I tended to be writing about back then was, you know, extremely violent video games or violent movies. And I was arguing that we should trust the public to be able to engage with these things. And um, I don't believe in media effects theory. And I think people can watch violent films and not become violent. It was a difficult argument to win, but it was possible. You fast forward 20 years or so, and now I find myself defending the right to say he and she. Right. Or, or the right to say that, you know, if you have a penis, you're, you are not a woman. So th th that journey is extraordinary. And I think it's exactly for the reasons you describe, which is that if you set out to censor what we all can agree is unpleasant or deeply offensive or explicitly racist, the problem with doing that is that you set in motion the logic of censorship. And British campuses speak to that very well because initially, 20 or so years ago, student unions were no-platforming fascists. Now they're no-platforming feminists. They no-platformed fascists who thought that black people were inferior to white people and that Jewish people were horrible and so on and so forth. Now they're no-platforming feminists who think there's a difference between men and women. And it's such an extraordinary state of affairs and I think speaks to one of the key problems with censorship, which is as soon as you cede the authority mm. over speech and thought to a body external to oneself, then you're on a hiding to nothing, really. That's right. And I, I think that the whole area of hate speech, I've, I've boiled down essentially to the two fundamental questions as I see them, which is where do we draw the line and who decides? Mm. And I think these are the fundamental questions. And if, if you if you cede the idea that someone gets to draw that line and, and someone gets to decide, and it's not going to be you, 
then we just see that grow and grow. And I think another thing here is we talked about these laws change and, and increase over time. The scope of hate speech laws um, grows. But I think another point worth making is in, in, in many instances, these laws can can stay the same. And it's a interpretation of them that changes, which we have no control or mm. say over, mm. which I think is even more dangerous yeah. because you end up with this process where, for example, you could hold a view that 10 years ago was mainstream and perhaps five years ago was a little bit unpopular and then today is borderline criminal. And if you think of that example, the underlying law has stayed exactly the same. Your view has stayed mm. exactly the same. So nothing has changed, but you've gone from mainstream to unpopular to criminal with nothing changing. Yeah. And you don't get to decide this process. You're just a victim of it. Yeah. And we see this with a number of different issues, you, you know, male, female, same-sex marriage, what have you, where views, they're just staying still yeah. and the world is moving around them. And I think it's incredibly dangerous um, and yeah, again, comes from uh, this initial seeding of authority that people get to decide what is and isn't allowed. Yeah, I think in relation to that, it's worth going back in time a bit to when these laws and rules first came in and when they were, to a large extent, targeted at people who we would agree are repugnant people with repugnant ideologies, um, fascists, explicit racists, and and so on. One of the things I find frustrating as someone who writes about freedom of speech a lot is this presumption that people sometimes make that if you're defending someone's right to say something, you must agree with what they're saying, mm -hmm. which in my view runs entirely counter to the whole notion of defending freedom of speech. And I think back to uh, the American Civil Liberties Union in the late 1970s when it was a more consistently liberal and interesting organization than it is today, when it's very often Jewish leaders, particularly on on the East Coast of the US, would defend the right of Nazis to march through Skokie in particular, and defend the right of the Nazi party to organize and to publish literature and so on. And, and these are often people who were the sons and daughters of people who'd been killed in the Holocaust. And yet they recognized that in order to defend freedom of speech for everyone, you have to defend it for people you hate. Censorship often comes first for people we all agree are terrible. So how do you deal with that growing frustration? I think it's the presumption that you must secretly agree with these people is becoming more and more pronounced. How do you deal with it's that? It's very hard. You're absolutely right. And you know, a lot of the cases that we're working on and, and that I've worked on over the years, uh, helping people as they have become uh, targets of these hate speech laws. I'll, I'll talk to people about them and they will, I'll, you know, they'll ask what the case was about and I'll say what happened and, and they will instinctively sort of recoil a little bit and mm. say, Oh, I wish they'd said it differently. Mm. And so, well, that's exactly the point of it. If they had said it differently, then it wouldn't be a case in the first place. Yeah. And I wish they'd, I mean, I wouldn't say it as they said it. Uh, but that's really, as you say, that's not the point. The point isn't that we have free speech for uh, the most polite, for the most well-spoken, for the perfectly formed views out there. We have to defend free speech, even for the views that we strongly disagree with. And I think one of the things that we need to do in, in, in reclaiming a, a culture of free speech is work hard to, to separate this idea that defending free speech means agreeing with the speech. Yeah. And these, these are completely opposite things. Yeah. Uh, just because you defend the speech doesn't mean you agree with it. Yeah. And unfortunately, that conflation that's happening 
Uh, I just see more and more of it. And one of the things we need to do is, is separate those things out again. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. You mentioned the word culture there and and trying to cultivate a culture Mm. of freedom and respect for liberty and respect for dissent and so on, which I think is incredibly important because... One of the depressing consequences and incredibly serious consequences of the new regime of hate speech laws is the social impact it has. So not only does it mean there are sometimes very serious cases of people being dragged to court for having a particular moral belief, but it has this trickle down effect across society, particularly across institutions. So if you look at college campuses, particularly in the UK and in other parts of the world too, the logic of hate speech law is acted out, even if it's not necessarily the state putting its boot on your throat and forcing you to to uh, recant what you believe. But, you know, people are no platformed. People are sometimes simply not invited to give a speech or they're disinvited if they have the wrong views or if they have supposedly bigoted views. So it, one of the issues is that the, the formal strictures against supposedly hateful speech gives rise to an informal culture of policing between citizens and also self-policing, self-censorship and self-silencing. So it seems to me quite straightforward in terms of countering the law. On the one hand, you fight individual cases in relation to certain things that have been said, which is what you do a lot of. On the other hand, you fight against the laws themselves, and you might argue, let's scrap this law because it's incredibly censorious. So that seemed quite a straightforward exercise, even if it's an uphill struggle. What about the culture? How how do we go about challenging a, a worryingly deep-seated idea that speech is dangerous and, mm. and can hurt you and it must be controlled? Well, before I answer that, let me just piggyback on what you're saying. So I was speaking to a Pakistani lawyer earlier today, uh, deals with blasphemy cases in Pakistan. And she, she said the point in a much more extreme context, which is exactly what you're saying, which is, she said, once you are accused of blasphemy, your life is over. doesn't matter what happens out. It doesn't matter whether you're acquitted. It doesn't matter. But once you're accused of blasphemy in that context, your life is over. Now, we're not there yet in the West, but it doesn't take much to see this connection here and the way that the accusations of hate speech, the accusations of hate crime, regardless of what happens in the courtroom, has this social impact and this stigmatization, these other things that you mentioned, no platforming, being banned, perhaps losing employment, perhaps not being able to regain employment, whatever the case may be, just the accusation of it, mm. not the conviction. Yeah. And I think we need to take those warnings from places like Pakistan. We're not there, but we need to understand what's happening in those contexts and see how it applies in our own in terms of okay so what do we what do we do about all of this how do we create this culture i think that people have to be emboldened to speak out i remember i was organizing a conference a number of years ago at oxford university which is like the hotbed of no platforming and sure enough sure enough there were attempts made to no platform us uh, we were just this just a peaceful normal gathering no big deal but attempts were made to no platform us and i remember the warden there at the time at this college oxford was aghast that this was taking place 
and he he refused to to kick us out. He refused to do it. He said, and he said to us, he learned a long time ago. He said that you have to stand up to a bully, and I think we you have to apply that same principle because what we have today is this uh, increasingly shrill, hysterical mob, often played out on a pylon on social media, where they will just yeah you know, just go hysterical. And the natural response is total capitulation. The apology, the, you know, we didn't realize this or whatever, total capitulation. And that only emboldens the mob to keep going. And I think that the more that we just shrug our shoulders and say, so what? You know, I, I don't care. Mm. Uh, I don't care what you say. I'm going to still hold my views. The more that people stand up to the bully, which is, we see all the time this hysterical mob. I think the more empowered others will become. Yeah. Now that's hard because yeah. no one wants to go first, but I think that's the only way we're going to be able to break through. It is hard and it's hard for the reasons you described there, which is that you're right, we're not in a Pakistan-style situation yet where committing blasphemy is a, a life-threatening thing in many instances to do. But we are in a situation where you can be blacklisted, you can be hounded online. We're in a situation where mobs of people will phone your employer and tell them to get rid of you because you hold deeply bigoted views. And, and you know, companies, shamefully in my view, but understandably given the culture we live in, they hear the word bigot or racist. And even if it's not true, and in most of these instances, it's not. And they run scared and they take action. So it, it can have really terrible consequences on people's lives. And I, I wanted to talk about the, just in relation to the word blasphemy, and another word you used earlier, the word heresy, it seems to me that there are now some pretty firm, woke orthodoxies that it is very difficult to criticize without landing yourself in hot water. And it's, it, it, I'm sometimes quite amazed and terrified as well at the speed with which these orthodoxies take hold. I mean, the, a good example that I've written about a lot and had a great deal of flack for doing so, is the issue of same-sex marriage. I think the speed with which that went from uh, an eccentric idea that most people thought didn't fit with the institution of marriage to being this thing you had to believe or else a mob would try and shut you down, as has happened with Chick-fil-A and their attempt to move to the UK, which I think they've pretty much given up on. The speed with which that happened, I think, spoke very profoundly to a culture of conformism and to the real strain of authoritarianism, which isn't always the police knocking on your door, but which is a general fear to say what you believe to be true. The same with the transgender issue, the, the speed with which it has become unacceptable to think that there are men and women and one cannot become the other is quite terrifying. So it does often feel like people who express what were traditionally very reasonable, evidenced views have become the new heretics. Do you think heresy is a, is a useful word in that context? And would you encourage people to engage in such heresy to the end of expanding freedom? I think it is a good word, heresy. And I think it, because I think that it connects to a period of history that I think we understand quite well in Europe, that there was an absolutism throughout Europe that you were right or wrong. And if you're wrong, you will be punished. And I think that's exactly what we see today, that it's not okay to hold the wrong views. It's not okay to hold the wrong way of thinking. You will be punished for being wrong. And I think that yeah, we have all of the same parallels. So we have the new orthodoxy and the new heresy. And I think they're important parallels to make. And I think that 
people, and it's not easy, for, it's easy for me to say this, not easy for people to do it, but people have to stand firm. I think we have to understand collectively, for those listening, for those who have uh, views on these issues that they've always held, not to conform just because of this hysterical mob. Because yeah. what happens is the more and more people that fold, the harder it becomes yeah. for others to stand up. And so it's everyone has to make their own decision for themselves, but they have to also understand that in folding, they have an impact then on others yeah. because they make every time someone capitulates, they make it harder for someone else because that person gets more and more isolated and is even though they've stayed the same, they've not budged one iota, they are considered extreme pariah. And so I think we have to come together. It doesn't matter if we agree on all these issues, doesn't matter if we disagree on many other issues, none of that matters. But we have to come together and say, it's okay to hold on to these beliefs, it's okay to express them, it's okay to debate these issues, it's okay to have deeply held convictions on important issues and to debate them in the public square. Yeah. And I think the, the, the important thing about that is that not only is it good for the individual to, to say what he or she thinks, that's always a healthy thing to be, to be honest in your beliefs and to express them as freely as you want to, but also it's good for society as well. Because one thing that you've spoken about and written about is, is the opinion corridor or what I sometimes refer to as, as the parameters of acceptable thought. And, uh, whichever phrase you want to use, the, the problem is that it's shrinking. It's getting smaller. And what that means, as you were saying earlier, you could hold the exact same views that you've held for decades, but suddenly through no fault of your own, find yourself miles outside of what it's acceptable to think. And I think one of the problems with the tendency to capitulate is that it, it contributes explicitly to the further shrinking of right. what you're allowed to say. So it, holding back that shrinking process, I think, is absolutely essential. That's right. And and recognizing that that sort of capitulation, that folding, for whatever reason it may be, and the, no doubt there are good reasons, it has an effect on others then. It's not a neutral act and it's not just about themselves, but it has an effect on others. It makes it harder for others then to speak out. I have one more question, which is about a bugbear of mine, which is one of my least favorite phrases, which is that freedom of speech has consequences. Now, th the reason I want to ask you about that is because it's been really winding me up because very often what happens if if you protest against someone losing their job because of what they said, or if you protest against someone being kicked off campus because of their beliefs whatever it might be, frequently the response now is you want freedom without consequences, but actually freedom of speech has consequences. Now, the thing I find frustrating about that is that if they mean that freedom of speech has consequences in the sense that people will argue back against you, that's absolutely fine. If the consequence of freedom of speech is more speech, I have no problem with that whatsoever. But if the consequence of my freedom of speech or your freedom of speech is that a mob will threaten us or we might lose our job or we might find ourselves blacklisted and censored. That's a deeply problematic thing. And th the thing I find terrifying is that I, I, I often think to myself that the, the killers at Charlie Hebdo probably work towards the same slogan, which is freedom of speech has consequences. It just so happens that their consequences were incredibly extreme, although they seem to have been driven by the same cult of offence taking as other less extreme sections of, of the cultural establishment and the political establishment. So I, I wonder what you would say to those people who, who would say to someone like you, you know, calm down, chill out, Paul, you have to understand if you say these things, there will be consequences. Cause that strikes me as quite a chilling yeah, contemporary. It is. It's always a threat, isn't it? It's, <laughs> 
we need to have courage. We need to have courage to keep on speaking what we believe to be true and important. And um, I don't think that we should self-censor for fear of, of the mob. And that is the only way ultimately that I think we will be victorious in this. If we are to reclaim any sense of a culture of freedom, and, you know, I, I live and work on the continent in Europe um, and really see a, quite a big difference between British culture and many other continental European countries when it comes to these freedoms. There's something very deeply ingrained within the British culture of freedom, particularly freedom of speech. And if we are to hold on to that and reclaim it, then we have to have courage to stand up in this, what's been referred to as a little cultural moment. You know, this little moment in time of this hysteria where we have to stand firm and have courage. Paul Coleman, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.